You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord God, we thank you for your goodness to us expressed in your life, death, and resurrection, which many of us have just come from celebrating. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of salvation and all that you have given to us. We pray by the Holy Spirit that what was experienced and understood and practiced by the early church would have its impact on us and uh, church today. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. And we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I don't think it's a secret why Luke would identify the Hellenistic uh, Jews who have come to Christ, who are disciples. Uh, I'll catch the door. Remember, Luke has a Greek background. And he is not on the scene yet. He'll be on the scene when, with the Apostle Paul. But these are the reports that he has heard and understood uh, that have uh, been testified to, that have testified to him. And he reports in those days when the number of disciples was increasing. Now I said last week, verse 41 and 42, that this is kind of a recap of Luke sort of brings us up to date when he says the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. This kind of recaps eight weeks in, ten weeks in to the life of the church from Pentecost. Now, in those days, leaves us without a specified time frame. So some time now has passed. In those days when the number of disciples, first time in the book of Acts that the word disciple is used. Disciple is synonymous with believer. But probably in our own thinking, disciple would imply a certain degree of greater seriousness, Disciple is one who has attached himself or herself to the master teacher, seeks to learn from, follow after. And I think it's important that the idea of disciple and believer is synonymous in Scripture. We all ought to own the fact that... uh, we're disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that shouldn't be such foreign language or a foreign concept to us that we have attached ourselves to Christ, seeking to learn from him in every dimension of life. It's not an elite believer who is a disciple. It is the normal believer who is a disciple. And it's the number of disciples increasing. And now the issue Uh, the Hellenistic Jews, among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. 
Let me just make a few comments on how the early church grew and how it grew authentically. They're increasing in number of disciples. And what we've said so far about the early church is that their growth was tested by persecution. So if you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you pay something of a price for that. Our growth as a church would certainly be tested by a degree of persecution. Even owning the fact that you really are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ in your other spheres of life. We live in a lot of different tribes. We've got our work tribe, our recreational tribe, our neighborhood tribe, our family tribe. I remember one brother who shared with me his story of coming to Christ, and he shared it at work to somebody who said, well, I've been praying that you'd become a Christian for years. And my friend had no idea that he was a Christian. No idea at all that he was a follower of Christ. The early church is defined by the fact that following the Lord Jesus led to a distinctive life that made you a counterculture, a resident alien in your home culture, a foreigner now in the place where you were most familiar. And another aspect of this serious growth of the early church is that they really preached the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Christ. In all the sermons that, Pente uh, that from Pentecost on that we have glimpses of in these first five chapters, there's a clear emphasis upon the crucified Christ, whose cross is essential for our salvation. A third thing is they didn't raise funds. So you got persecution, unauthentic preaching, and they weren't fundraising. They were sacrificially giving. And this is something, this practical response to the gospel was something that uh, was impressive this sacrificial giving instead of fundraising. And the fourth thing, the last thing I'll mention, is that they feared God more than they feared man. There was a sense of living before. And this fear, the fear of the Lord is a bound phrase in Scripture. Uh, you can't sort of look up fear and look up God and put the definition together. It's a bound phrase that includes this really personal, kind of complete reverence before the Lord God. Uh, I, just personally, what comes to my mind when I think of the fear of the Lord is the fear of my dad. But I did not dread my dad, and I wasn't afraid of his anger. I was afraid of displeasing him. And, you know, and I think that came fairly early in junior high where I really understood that my dad had my best interest. He really did. And so I did not want to displease him. Uh, and I, I likened that to our fear of the Lord. The Lord really has our best interests. A person that comes to my mind in this description in Acts 6 is the dean of the house church movement in China, 
His name is Wang Ming Dao. He died in 1991 and had a strong reputation. And he wrote this about the church. I have no desire to do something great. It is simply my hope in this world where truth is beclouded and where the lusts of men have broken their banks to be able to testify to God's truth and to live out his life. I wanted to be faithful unto death. He spent years in prison for his uh, work in the church in China. In my own peculiar sphere, I want to glorify God. And I want to spread the fragrance of Christ everywhere. It's not so much a large church that I want to build. It is rather to build up a church according to the mind of God. Two needs stand out in the world today. One is for model believers, disciples, and the other is for model churches, fellowship of believers, the household of faith. My prayer accordingly is that we may be model believers and that ours may be a model church. Satan's offensive against the early church really came through outward persecution and then the Anna. Ananias and Sapphira incident of the threat of moral uh, uh, or the lack of integrity within the life of the church. That was an internal uh, situation. And then uh, I think the, the vocational distraction. This is John Stott's take on Acts 6. What if the apostles had really divided their attention and shifted their uh, priority from preaching the gospel and from prayer, had shifted it now to meeting humanitarian needs. Now, they kept the priority, and they also kept meeting humanitarian needs. That both and is something that ought to be, I think, emphasized. They were able to maintain the priority of preaching the gospel and prayer, while at the same time meeting humanitarian needs, and they show us how that can be done here by a division of labor. A corollary for me in looking at Acts 6, where there's the concern of the early church to meet the need of these widows from a Greek orientation. So these are all Hebrews. They're all Jews at this point. But they have gathered from various places in Macedonia, Cyprus, various Greek-speaking, and have found themselves as immigrants in Jerusalem. And now, with Pentecost, they've received the gospel. And yet, they were not being, their needs were not being met the way the Hebrew, Jewish-speaking, Aramaic-speaking Jews in Jerusalem who had come to Christ, their needs were being met. So you've got this practical problem that Luke highlights here, I think is kind of a case study. It's not only this issue that would be in his mind, but it's this issue and how it was resolved that's, that to him is exemplary. Uh, how it affects me as I think of this passage is, I think sometimes we've made way too much of the office of the pastor. And too much has fallen on the shoulders of a small group of people in the life of a church. 
and not the shared responsibility of the life of the church, the gifts of the Spirit, every member ministry, a plurality of pastoral leadership. There are so many churches where pastors are, are lonely and fatigued and burnt out because so much falls just on them. I would an analogy for in my mind is they've become single parents in the church, and I, you know I really am, um, whenever you see a, a single parent that uh, is functioning well, I just am, I thank the Lord for how um, knowing the sustaining grace that's needed for that. I do think we've made too much of the pastor in certain ways. And what this passage teaches us is the priority that they place. Verse 2, so the 12 gathered, the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said. Now, just in that line, there is one, the 12, not Peter, not John alone, but the 12 gathered, so there's a plurality of leadership, and the 12 represents, as you know, symbolically, the collected people of God. The 12 representing the 12 tribes. There's symbolism in that 12. They gathered all the disciples together and said, now Luke is always very free with the word all, uh, but I think he's describing here that this is a concerted, holistic effort on the part of the church. The 12 gathered them together, and they say, the 12, the apostles, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now, wait on tables, you know, I almost wish that our translations uh, described what that is, because they're not uh, baristas at Starbucks. They're not... Uh, you know, running around uh, at Chick-fil-A serving. These aren't waiters. Wait on tables was an expression that would be the equivalent to bankers. You know, tables was a place where business actions were transacted. So at the table, you know, the money changes were at tables. These tables are a, a euphemism for the administration that is going on. Uh, we can't leave preaching the word of God in prayer to undergo administrating these issues of humanitarian concern in the church. So verse 3, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. Plurality of leaders leading to a decision that's transparent before all. And notice they de delegate the decision-making. You choose seven people full of the Holy Spirit. Not full of potential. Not full of, you can grow into this. Not full of, I hope this works. Uh, but choose people whose character is already evident they have already reached a level of maturity within months now, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and we'll turn this responsibility over to them. And we'll give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. 
And then verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole group. Notice all the features of good leadership that's involved in here. They do not designate the seven. They give it to the church, both the Hellenistic-speaking Christians as well as the Hebrew-speaking Christians to come up with the seven that will help distribute and administer and meet the needs of these widows. Verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and also Philip. Now, both Stephen and Philip are going to play a biographical role in the group, uh, growth of the church. And this is a, you know, an aside here is that Luke describes the church biographically. He describes it in terms of people. Not the whole story of all the people that are involved, but he picks out some. The church doesn't grow institutionally. It doesn't grow programmatically. It doesn't grow through policies. It grows through people who are committed to Jesus Christ. Now, along with that is institutional aspects, but the story, the story is what is important in Luke's mind. Philip, Procreus, Acander, Timian, Parmenas, Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism, apparently one of the only ones who had come purely as a Greek into the Jerusalem structure. The others were uh, Jews who were from Greek-speaking areas that collected at the Greek-speaking synagogue. In verse 6, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. You know, I don't think anything ontologically changed in these seven, among these seven because the apostles laid hands on them. Uh, the practice of laying hands goes back to Jacob, laying hands on Ephraim and Manasseh and praying uh, for them, his blessing. Uh, it goes back to Jesus laying hands on children and blessing the children. Uh, there's nothing kind of uh, overly sacred or overly magical about laying on hands. Uh, what it is is uh, a way of praying over and committing these seven to this particular responsibility in the life of the church. They're not being designated as kind of lead pastors or senior pastors in this, which is interesting because I think the, the prayer and laying on of hands could be done quite often within the life of the church in a meaningful way. So the word of God spread, verse 7, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now what's striking about that? A large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So the impact of the life of the church is really pretty great. That a lot of Jewish priests connected to the temple have believed in Christ and are part of the... You know, Acts, I think, is making, particularly before Paul's conversion, and certainly the truth of it beyond that, but really making the case that this is the purest form of Judaism. 
accepting Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And because of, and Gamelia's, as we saw last week, Gamelia said, you know, you can, uh, you can fight this or you can let it be. Because if it really succeeds, you may find yourself fighting against God. And apparently some of these priests took that message to heart. And they came to believe that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And notice a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Faith is not in opposition to obedience. Faith and faithfulness will always go hand in hand. Yes, we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. It's always a matter of faith and faithfulness. They became obedient to the faith. In this particular case, pastoral care meant meeting the needs of the Hellenistic speaking, the Greek widows. What all goes into pastoral care? What falls under the umbrella of the relational care of the life of the church? Jesus closes out the sermon on the end at the end in Matthew 25 by giving the parable of sheep and goats. And he says, you know, you've ministered to the hungry, to the thirsty, to the stranger, to the incarcerated. That was a sign of what it was to be a sheep rather than a goat. Those needs have not gone away in the 21st century church. I think they're more hidden to us. But wouldn't mentally and physical disability also come under the umbrella of relational care? The education of the young, support for the poor and needy, all of that would come under the umbrella of relational and pastoral care today. One particular need is expressed here, but there's a lot of needs to be covered. When Paul and Barnabas were sent out by the Jerusalem church, Paul says this, alludes to it in Galatians, uh, we were sent, prayed over, and we were reminded to pay special attention to care for the poor. And Paul adds, we really wanted to do that anyways. Uh, James, you know, true religion is caring for the widow and the orphan and keeping yourself unpolluted from the world, James 1.27. So this phenomenon of making sure these needs are met within the life of the church, but not necessarily by the pastoral team, I think is important. One of the things that has impressed me over the years of the Advent is that uh, their care team, uh, under Craig's leadership, doesn't seek volunteers. They go after people who feel they feel have the gifts of being able to relate and to minister and visit in the hospital. I think that's impressive. Churches are often trying to just get warm bodies that will help and serve in certain ways. But there is 
a need for training, a need for understanding, a need for wisdom to be, as it were, filled with the Holy Spirit uh, and with wisdom. So uh, this passage, while it seems almost like an in-between text between uh, the sort of summation in chapter 5, proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah, and then Stephen's sermon. But in verse 8, Stephen, uh, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. I wish we knew better what those great signs and wonders were. We, we don't. But it is evident to Luke that what Stephen was doing was a sign of the Holy Spirit and the power of God at work. Uh, that may be tied into this large number of priests becoming obedient to the faith. An opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom of the Spirit, the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. The longest speech in Acts, the longest message or sermon, is delivered by Stephen, who doesn't even fit the category of apostle. And it's he that, and we'll discuss this next week, it is he that gives sort of the drama of salvation history before the Sanhedrin. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Uh, Remember, Luke describes in the gospel, Jesus saying, don't worry about what you're going to say. Leave it to the Lord. And this would be, I think, a a classic case of the promise being fulfilled that the Lord really did enable Stephen to be able to speak in that uh, difficult situation. In verse 11, then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Now, put that together with the number of priests becoming obedient to the faith. The priests who certainly knew uh, the law, knew Moses, and yet here we have Stephen being condemned for blasphemous words against Moses and against God. It's complicated, but I think we've got to think it through that Jesus ended the very best religion that had ever been designed. When he walked out of the temple, having given a kind of furious message against the religious leaders, railing against them, white heat is expressed in those words in Matthew 23. And he walks out of the temple and he's going to go to the Mount of Olives and he's going to describe described the destruction of the temple in AD 70. When everything is going to be brought down, every stone upon stone is going to be leveled. And he makes this message, he really is describing the end of the best religion that was ever designed, because the best religion that was ever designed pointed to himself as the fulfillment, the Messiah. It wasn't in the sacrificial system. It wasn't in the temple. 
It wasn't in the altar. All of that was pointed to and fulfilled in Christ. And that's the message of the book of Hebrews. That there is a better covenant, a better salvation, a better, 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 a theme that runs through the book of Hebrews. And that's what these priests have caught on to. A large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen is spotted as one of those individuals that has been especially outspoken on Moses, on the temple, and they have judged him to be speaking blasphemous words. All he's doing is echoing what Jesus said. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Verse 12, so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin, and they produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. Very similar to the accusations against Jesus. The false witnesses, just like Jesus had false witnesses, very much the same message, even though uh, Jesus is pointing to the fulfillment of the law in himself. Stephen is pointing to the fulfillment of the law in Jesus. This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. Somewhat valid, at least a half-truth, because they believe they're condemning him for uh, speaking against Moses when in fact Stephen is speaking of the fulfillment of the Moses promises, the fulfillment of what the temple pointed to. So could you say that Stephen challenged the difference between the custom of order and the custom of faith? Say again, please. Would you say that I want to say it more strongly than that, that it's actually the temple and the law is no longer that which you can believe is bringing salvation to you. You've got to read it in terms now in the trajectory and place your faith in Jesus. So it, it's not thematically a, an abstraction between order and faith. The division is between our trust in a religious system versus trust in what God has given to us as a fulfillment of all of that promise and pointed to. And it's a radical faith now that Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth is really the, one, the holy and righteous one the fulfillment of all of this, the fulfillment of the sacrificial system, the fulfillment of all that God designed for our redemption. That's really radical. Yeah, it, it's right. It's greater than a Copernican revolution. But I don't want to reduce it to abstractions that like order versus faith or religion versus no longer 
the aspects of that. It is fulfilled in this person who lived, died, rose again, and ascended. And all that occupied you in terms of temple and sacrificial system is now carried over to the reality of the household of faith. It's not like now I have my solitary spiritual solution to my life problem. The early church and Christ knows no, knows, uh, no resolution simply individualistically. This is one of the things about the, about the book of Acts. It's really speaking to us as a fellowship of believers, as a household of faith, as a body of Christ. And it cannot be satisfied by you just individually or me just individualistically feeling like somehow I have spiritual assurance now in Jesus. We have got to be connected. And part of the connectedness is that the gift of the Holy Spirit really leads to meeting all those practical humanitarian family, children, life, poor needs. And, that, and that's essential. So this is the, the Spirit's agenda for the household of faith is highly relational, not institutional. But what often survives in churches is the institutional aspect at the expense of the relational. And the relational is vital for the life of the church. And then so priests are, sorry, uh, we gotta go. Priests are obedient to the faith they have been called to. Uh, I find that Jesus put them out of business. Jesus put a whole order of religion out of business. That's what it meant for, and that's not unlike a believer today in Nigeria, northern Nigeria, raised as a Muslim coming to Jesus Christ. Their whole life has been stripped from under them. And in their own home territory, now they have become a resident alien, a foreigner. Um, well, next week we will look at the drama of salvation history as Stephen, under duress, but in the spirit, presents it to us. One last thought, verse 15, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, who does that make you think of? makes you think of Moses coming down from Mount Sinai. And so at the very point where they are saying that he's blaspheming by speaking against Moses, Stephen looks like Moses. And God, as it were, uh, in a special way, just lets him glow in such a way that it was recognizable. Uh, and this is the connection that Luke is making. May the God of hope... Fill us with all peace and joy, and as we put our hope in him, may our hope abound through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.